Hello, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex. Today, I am joined by Mike Rinder. Mike is a former top-level executive of the Church of Scientology, but for the last 15 years or so, he has been an outspoken critic. Mike's story and perspective have been featured prominently all across the media, including in the HBO documentary Going Clear, in the A&E series Leah Remini, Scientology in the Aftermath, and now he has written his story down in a beautiful book, A Billion Years, My Escape from a Life in the Highest Ranks of Scientology. Mike, thank you so much for joining me. Hi, Chris. It's great to be with you tonight. So this is your life story, primarily centered around Scientology, obviously. Um, But you are not a person who was born into the church, but practically born into the church. You joined at, at like age five, right, when your parents did? Yes, exactly. That's exactly right. In Australia in 1960. Do you remember joining, or is your memory just that you were always in, essentially? Yeah, uh, uh, that's exactly that. And my sort of first memories of Scientology relate to, you know, engagement with other people in Scientology and hearing my parents, or not hearing them, being on the receiving end of my parents telling me things that now I was supposed to do or how I was supposed to act based on what L. Ron Hubbard had to say. What's your first memory of realizing that there was anything odd or unusual or controversial about your religious upbringing? I mean, I imagine as a little kid, you just take it for granted. You go to church with your parents. You do the things they do. At some point, I'm sure you realized that there was something uh, different about you and your family. Yeah, and that was pretty early on. There was a small community of Scientologists in Australia, and um, I covered in the book, but most people generally don't know there was a a government inquiry into Scientology in Australia in the early mid-60s. And that resulted in Scientology actually being banned in the state of Victoria. And it sort of bled over to where I lived, which was in Adelaide, South Australia. And in the mid-60s, it became rather dangerous to be a Scientologist. You know, one of our friends who was the sort of head of the local Scientology organization, had the police show up at his home looking for Scientology books to confiscate. And so it became a sort of a part of my life that stayed hidden from the rest of the world. You know, I went to a regular school. There was no Scientology school in Adelaide when I was growing up. And there wasn't anybody there that knew that we were Scientologists. And, you know, it was a sort of a a Jekyll and Hyde life of during the day, I'm just a regular old kid at school. And at night, I turn into a cult monster. It also, Chris, sort of reinforced for me from a very young age, this idea that is very pervasive through Hubbard's writings and lectures, that there is a a vast conspiracy 
that is seeking or has been seeking to destroy Scientology. And, you know, it's government agencies, it's tax authorities, it's the media, it's psychiatry. I mean, there's a whole rash of people involved in this massive conspiracy. Um, I'm not sure who supposedly, supposedly coordinates it all, but nevertheless, this idea that it's us against the world, which is an idea that that sort of has to exist in a high control group or a cult. But that idea was very, very, you know, present in my life. And it made me sort of, or it helped convince me that Hubbard was on the right track, that the things that he was saying were, were actually true, that I knew my family and the family of these people who the police showed up at their door looking for their books were just nice people. And so obviously there was some bad, nefarious plot afoot that the police would show up at their house. So it, it was a pretty young age that I first, you know, began seeing the world through the eyes of Scientology and realizing that we were not only different, we were also being persecuted. I got to imagine that the church has a mixed relationship with that kind of persecution, because on the one hand, it's it's very convenient and almost, as you said, necessary to have that persecution. And this is a really old principle of psychology that if you can if you can get people focused on an external enemy, it's very unifying. If you if Scientology or Hubbard or David Miscavige never had any of that, I'm sure it would weaken their ability to tighten everybody together. Did you ever experience that at, at higher levels, like you or other executives actually thinking, oh, this is a good thing. This is going to, to some extent, this is going to bring people together to fight against the common enemy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And Scientology is sort of the masters of, of disaster capitalism. Everything bad that happens, whether it's um, directed at Scientology or is just bad, a bad thing in the world, you know, directed at Scientology would be like being persecuted by the German government. You know, Scientology has had a long, uh, very contentious relationship with the German government who has treated Scientology sort of like their, their just new age Hitlerism of seeking to create, uh, you know, a perfect genetically uh, perfect race, a master race, blah, 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 blah. There's not, and there is some truth to that. You know, the they- homo they, novus idea. Exactly, exactly. But also when there is a natural disaster like a, a, a hurricane or a, a earthquake or something, Scientology rushes around to, to all of their people and says, give us money, give us money. we got to go help everybody. And the actual help that is provided is negligible. And the only real money that gets spent is to fly some people to whatever the location is, along with a video crew, so that they can get video shots of these people supposedly helping in these disasters and then use those to do further fundraising by saying, well, look, we had, you know, these people here. You can see it for yourself. It's on video. So we need more money to get more people there. But the, the reality is that 
it's basically nothing happens. It's a, a tiny, tiny little effort that gets turned into a major propaganda piece. I forget the name of the woman, but there's a woman who has made almost her entire Scientology critic project finding those kinds of claims, tracking down the pictures and the specific claims and fact checking them rigorously and posting the evidence like, you know, no, all we have is evidence that like a few of you guys went down here, snapped a picture, gave someone a bottle of water and took off or something like that. What do you know who I'm talking about? Yeah, absolutely. It's Stephanie Hutchison. Stephanie Hutchinson. And she has a website called, the name has just slipped me, but... If you remember at some point, I'll include it on the show notes. Yeah, she's on Twitter as Altio et Veritas. Confront and Shatter. Shatter and Confront. (laughs) Confront and Shatter. I think that's the name of her website. It's wonderful. She Stephanie was never a Scientologist. She never had any involvement in Scientology. Um, some of their propaganda efforts just caught her attention, and she decided that she might track some of these down. And uh, lo and behold, she has become uh, a real thorn in the side of Scientology because when they put out their propaganda saying, well, you know, we were there at this earthquake and we were working with the Red Cross, Stephanie writes to the Red Cross and says, Scientology is saying that they were working with you at this earthquake. Do you have a comment on this? And invariably, they come back saying, we have no idea what you're talking about. We are not working with those people. We don't want to work with those people. Please get our name out. It's a great little project that she has embarked upon. And I am very grateful for the work that she has done because it's it's very, very impressive. When people hear stories about Scientology or, or comparable groups, Nexium, one thought that people have is, you know, that that would never happen to me. And a relevant question is, you know, what is the initial draw to someone who is otherwise a normal, bright person? So I'll, I'll put it to you, not to you, but to your parents. What, what do you th- what was the main draw for your parents when they first became involved in Scientology? Well, I think it's different for everyone, Chris, but I I do have some overview ideas about this. And and this is also true from my friendship now with uh, Sarah and Nippy and Mark Vicente from Nexium and Lloyd Evans from the Jehovah's Witnesses. And like, there are a lot of people, there's like a community of people who are like ex-cult members and It is interesting to me that you talk to Mark Vicente and Sarah and Nippy. They are very, very smart, accomplished, intelligent, capable people. And there are a lot of people like that in Scientology, too. It's not the world of insecure, hopeless searchers who have nothing going on in their life and suddenly come across something that gives them some hope. No, the appeal of Scientology and Nexium and many of these other groups is to tell people that we have answers that will not only help you, but give you the ability to help other people. And this is a very, very strong motivation for people coming into Scientology. You will, you will see and hear the pitch that is given to them which is primarily, look, we have the only, the only answers to the problems of mankind. 
Uh, L. Ron Hubbard has discovered the, the answers to all of life. And you can not only appreciate or have the benefit of this for yourself, you can learn all of these techniques that will allow you to help people around you and make the world a better place. Scientology generally is sort of full of empaths. And from my experience with Nexium, so was Nexium. And the there is a, a percentage of people at the top of those organizations that are sociopaths. And those sociopaths live on the on the good and and blood and money and time of the empaths. But it is also true that you, you know. The more I studied Nexium, the more I realized how much Keith Ranieri had stolen from L. Ron Hubbard. It's really apparent if you know it's, much about Scientology, down to the is, language he uses. It's it's incredible, Chris. And you know, I've had a lot of conversations with Sarah Nippy and Mark and Bonnie, and like there, it, it's even layers beneath what is so apparent just to anybody that is familiar even with the terminology of both organizations. There's a lot of other things. But I think that what is really amazing is what Hubbard did was steal a lot of things. He took ideas from all over the place. And I often say, look, if Scientology was complete horseshit, nobody would be involved. There are things within it that have value. And that's what catches people and gets them hooked and involved. One of the first reviews of Dianetics has a line that's something like a mix of outrageous nonsense and perfectly reasonable common sense or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And I read Dianetics and it is that it's, it's there's a lot of nonsense, but I plenty of it's like, yeah, obviously. And I think the first edition of it had a dedication to a lot of different prominent thinkers that he subsequently took out because that's acknowledging that he didn't invent everything out of his mind. Right. Yeah, well, you know, Hubbard, Hubbard, there are a contradictory statements by Hubbard about virtually everything, everything in his life, everything in Scientology, everything about his principles, blah, 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 blah. I mean, it just goes on and on. But you are right. He said that Dianetics and Scientology basically are the culmination of human thought and reason and intelligence over the last 50,000 years. That's sort of a, a statement that's made for the for the propaganda purposes for the general public. You know, we're just like like everybody else. There's not not much difference here. You know, we we've taken ideas and and agree with with what Jesus taught and we agree with what Buddha taught. We agree with what everybody teaches. Except as you go further into Scientology, then you get the Hubbard statement saying, well, I'm the first person in the history of the universe to have discovered the real truths about life and livingness and how to be happy and how to attain spiritual enlightenment and eternal happiness. And the reason that I was able to do this is because I'm not from this planet. I was sent here to save planet Earth. And I'm a, like a higher being from some other terrestrial organization or planet or something. And 
here I am doing a yeoman-like job of saving everybody here. Well, I'm making a few bucks, but I'm I'm saving everybody. Was that claim that you just mentioned? Is that something that's that's open knowledge to entry level Scientologists, or is that not like at all higher yeah. levels? Okay, yeah, way higher levels, and and it's not even just on the OT levels. That's stuff that was said to like Sea Org members, senior officials in Scientology. He alludes to some of it in various places that is publicly available. You know, he kind of gives this tease of. Well, you know, how did I come to rise above the reactive mind, which is what his great discovery was in Dianetics, that there is this subconscious mind that controls your emotions and also physical and somatic ills. And how did I come to rise above this when nobody else ever has? Well, that's a question that we that won't be answered right here, but suffice to say, I'm the only one who's ever done it. You know, like that sort of oblique reference to this idea, but then in uh, moments of candor to people that he thinks he can trust, he's like, I'm not from this planet. You mentioned some of the doctrines within Dianetics, the first thing that he writes before he even names Scientology. And if you read Dianetics, which even if you're not a Scientology, I thought it was very fun to read. I, I spent a lot of time, I've been interested in Scientology for a long time, for Partially, it's inherently interesting. I have personal reasons to be interested in it, too. But uh, I, I decided, out of fairness, to read as much actual L. Ron Hubbard work as I could. And Dianetics was not convincing, but it was fun and interesting and outrageous. And he presents this... I mean, on the face of it, it's not an entirely insane or implausible view. He just pres- It's a little implausible, but he just there's just no... There's no footnotes. There's no evidence. He, he just kind of makes up this model of how the brain might work and, you know, if you didn't know anything about psychologists and you were getting your Ph.D. and you were taking some classes and they told you this is how it worked, you could believe it. It's not entirely right. crazy. But I think I've heard people say about religions like it's a mistake for a religion to make really serious and concrete claims because then they can be tested. And I'm curious, what was your perspective as a practicing Scientologist and what is the general perspective on the fact that there are so many concrete claims in Dianetics just about being a clear, what it what it entails to be clear, that you won't get sick, that your eyesight will be fixed, that you'll have all of these abilities, and you just so plainly see, you know, forget clear, people who are OTs, and none of these things are true about them. Like, how do you deal with the cognitive dissonance? Do people talk about this explicitly? I've never had a, heard a satisfactory answer. No, uh, and cognitive dissonance is uh, a hallmark of cult life. In fact, I think that the term comes from that, you know, what I mean? like this, these crazy things, you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses say the end of the world is happening in 1975 on an exact date, and it doesn't happen. And then they carry on like, and it's that is a very similar concept in Scientology. Hubbard was a, a very clever clever con man in that he made a bunch of claims in Dianetics and that attracted a huge amount of interest and a lot of people got involved and they all thought that they were going to have, you know, the perfect life after reading Dianetics and doing some of the the auditing procedures, that's what he calls it, the counseling, which is really, in, in Dianetics, it's really just regression therapy. And They thought that this was all going to happen because Hubbard said it was going to happen, that they'd have an eidetic memory, 
<laughs> that they'd never get sick again. They wouldn't have a cold. Like you said, they could throw away their glasses. They'd The lame would walk again. Their cancer would be cured. I mean, the claims that are in Dianetics are absolutely over-the-top outrageous. However, he was smart enough to say when all of those things didn't come true that I've continued to do my research and I've made another breakthrough that explains why people are unable to achieve these things. It's not that they're not achievable. It's that there are other barriers that were heretofore unseen that now explain why. And if you follow now my new next steps and pay more money for the next steps, you will achieve that those promised gains in Dianetics. And, and in fact, that's what Scientology is. Scientology is like the next step to explain why Dianetics didn't accomplish everything because there is this hidden, unforeseen force that overlays everything uh, in Dianetics, and that is what Hubbard called the Thetan or the spirit and that the spirit controls the mind and the spirit controls the body. So now we have to address the spirit. It's not good enough to just address the reactive mind because the spirit is really the, the Thetan is the person who is controlling everything. And then and each, each year almost, he would come out with a new, here's the next best uh, laundry soap that this is really going to get your clothes white and clean. And like last year's model, I know we said it would get them really white and clean, and it didn't quite live up to everything we hoped for, but now we've got a formula that really will do it. And if you can, if the promise of your new formula is, is so far beyond, you know, getting your clothes white, it is making you impervious to death making you able to live forever, making you happy for all eternity, that's pretty powerful carrots dangling at the end of the stick. And as people go on in Scientology, the carrots get, get bigger and juicier sounding, but they're still dangling at the end of the stick that is never actually attainable. But then you start seeing people who have invested so much time, so much money, and so much of their credibility into Scientology that they can't walk away from it. They can't turn around and say, oops, I'd be duped. Oops, I was wrong. Oops, this, this shit really doesn't work. And so they tend to stick around to save face. And that's another big part of why people stay in Scientology and stay in any cult, I think. I mean, and they're encouraged to lie to themselves and each other, right? Like, because it's, there's a lot of shame attached to not making progress up the bridge in Scientology. So you, you lie about it to yourself and everyone else. Absolutely. There is also an enormous amount of peer pressure, Chris. I mean, Scientology is a masters at peer pressure and insisting that, that you publicly state and speak your truth, which goes along with everybody else's truth. So 
Hobbit comes out with a new thing and tells everybody that they need to run around a pole, literally run around a pole in staked in the ground and run around and run around for days on end. And that this will bring miraculous life-changing realizations and accomplishments to you. And so people go out and they run around the pole and they hear someone that has just managed to persuade the people that, that are in charge of it. Okay. This guy's done. He, he can, he can go sit down because he goes, Oh my God, it was incredible. I had the hugest wins and I'm doing so amazing. I'm in charge of my entire life, blah, 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 blah. And everybody else hears it and goes, okay, so if I say that, they'll let me stop doing this shit. Or if I say that, I'll be a hero and everybody will clap me and people will slap me on the back and tell me how great I am. And I'll get gain status within the group and people will look up to me. And this sort of peer pressure has an enormous effect on people. You know, I'm, I know that you're familiar with the, the many experiments that have been done that prove that peer pressure will cause someone to say and do things that they know are absolutely wrong or, un, or untrue and just lie because everybody else is. The most recent episode I just produced, we were we were talking about, I, I forget the name of the authors, but famous psychology experiment where you have 10 actors and one real person and all of the actors are shown a series of lines, line A, B, C, and D. And like yes. one of them is obviously longer than the other. They all say that the lines are the same length. And then the real person is asked, what do you think? And they will lie and say what they know is obviously untrue. Not every time, but frequently enough because they don't want to stand out and seem like a weirdo. And that's the obvious explanation. And it fits with, I think, common sense. Yeah. What you were saying earlier about keeps coming out with like new and better soap. You know, this is really going to get your clothes white. It was reminding me of the first the first thing I watched that really got me interested in Scientology and also first introduced me to you indirectly long time ago, probably more than 10 years ago. I watched the interview that the actor Jason Begay put out mm -hmm. talking about his experience. And he talks about being ready to leave, being really frustrated because whatever, the newest thing, new aerodynetics, something came out. He was supposed to redo everything, pay a bunch of money. And he was frustrated because he was already not feeling like he was making progress. And now he had to do things again. And they were like, OK, just take some time off. Listen to these old lectures from Hubbard. And he's going through and he's listening to him. And 30 years earlier, he's hearing Hubbard say the same stuff that he's frustrated about now. He's saying the exact same things. Okay, we finally got it figured out. We finally understand how clear works. All you got to do is do it a little <clears throat> bit differently, pay us a little yep. bit more money. And he's like, this has been going on since the beginning. Yep. Uh, he just assumed that everyone was screwing up what Hubbard wanted them to do. But he was like, Hubbard was screwing it up from the beginning. He never had it right. And I've never met anyone who comes close to resembling the way he describes it clear. What am I doing here? And he references you in that. And that got me interested in you. And I've so I've been following your career for a long time with a lot of interest. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, uh, Jason is a wonderful guy, a, a very dear friend and a wonderful, funny, funny, funny guy. I wanted to ask about uh, you don't have to linger on this, but, you know, famously, famously for some people, you know, Shelley Miscavige and Heber Gench and other people who are very prominent in the church. Shelley Miscavige is the current leader of the church's wife. And Heber Gench was a former president of the church, which I think was mainly a PR position, right? Yep, totally. And they're, 
have been not seen publicly for quite a long time, presumably in some manner of Scientology prison. You want to say just a little bit about that? And then I have a follow-up question about that sort of thing. Yes. Shelley and Heba and literally every other executive that used to be at the highest echelons of Scientology uh, have been not have not been seen in public uh, for at least 15 years now. And you know, I was one of them. Before I escaped in 2007, I was one of those people that had been disappeared. And the common denominator of those people is that they were perceived by David Miscavige as potential threats to him controlling the Scientology world. Um, you know, I've been reading an interesting book recently, Chris, about the history of brainwashing. And part of the chapters, or one of the chapters, is very focused on Stalin and how he conducted his, how he controlled the people around him. And while Miscavige isn't walking up to people and shooting them in in the side of the head out of whim or having them shipped off to a gulag or pushed out a window or whatever, the same idea of destabilizing and keeping everybody on edge and one day you're good, the next day you're bad, you have no idea why, uh, and you may just be disappeared and never and literally erased from photos. It's so funny to to see some of the pictures in this book of Stalin standing with someone and then a year later, the same photo with the guy that's been literally erased, which is exactly what Scientology does with Hubbard's former wives. They vanish from the photographs that they, they were originally in with him because they're now persona non grata. This is a very outrageous situation that, that these people who were once very, very prominent in the world of Scientology, they would appear at major gatherings of Scientologists. They were looked up to. They were sort of revered. You know, Shelley was was at her husband's side all the time and then vanished. And nobody's allowed to ask. It's, it's like, you know, when one of the generals disappears in North Korea, nobody else wants to ever say, oh, what happened to Kim Park Pak? Where did he go? Because asking is tantamount to questioning, which is tantamount to traitoring, which is tantamount to you're going to the firing squad. So this is this is a bit the world of Scientology too. These people just go and nobody dare ask. And Leah Remini famously asked, where's Shelley at the wedding of the century of Tom Cruise to Katie Holmes in Italy? And that resulted in her being basically turned into a, a you know a non-person and interrogated and you don't have the fucking rank to ask that D- who said that to her tommy davis yeah oh tommy davis said that so that's a big deal and you know it's funny i i commented on twitter the other day because scientology goes oh well shelly miscavige this is all just a manufactured story to get media attention look at this statement from the los angeles police department now, 
We know how corrupt the LAPD has been, and particularly the Hollywood division when it came to Scientology. And the, and the LAPD put out a statement and said, you know, Shelley Miscavige is not missing. She's fine. Whatever. That statement is from 2014, and she has not been seen since. So how Scientology is still offering this up as proof that the, that she really isn't missing and she's really okay, 2014 is nearly 10 years ago now. She'd only been missing for nine years when that report was made. Wow. When did she, she go missing? In 2005? 2005. Wow. Or not missing. I mean, presumably... It's known where she is, but she's in a Scientology prison. Is that too dramatic yeah. to call it a prison? No, no. Even even if it's a prison of her own belief, as Larry Wright so aptly subtitled Going Clear. That was my next question. Yeah, so, so Lawrence Wright wrote Going Clear, which was the basis for the HBO documentary, and the subtitle is involves the phrase The Prison of Belief. So reading your book, reading other books... Uh, about Scientology, it's it's a really apt metaphor. And most people, it seems like most of what's doing the trick, most of what's keeping them in is this prison of belief. And you've commented that if someone, if the FBI were to have come onto Int Base when you were more or less held prisoner there and said, we're here to free you, you and everyone else to a person would have been like, what are you talking about? We're just playing musical chairs. We're having a good time. Get out of here. But reading, it's like dotted with experiences where there is real force used. Like, it's not only a prison of belief. Right. There are, people are physically held against their will to some extent, and sometimes it's sometimes it's not through physically holding them. Sometimes it's through holding their passports or making sure they don't have access to a vehicle, refusing to open a gate. I mean, people literally do climb the gate or, or run out, and they get chased. You know, the, the, one of the more dramatic experiences, there was someone who was maybe going to out Operation Snow White, and he was literally held prisoner, right? He was absolutely tied up and gagged with a tennis ball in his mouth so that he couldn't scream as he was driven around from safe house to safe house to keep him from going to the FBI after he had been arrested in Washington, D.C. for infiltrating the IRS with fake IDs and stealing documents from the IRS. He was caught and arrested and released on bail, and then whisked away to Los Angeles. And he said, I want to go to my arraignment. I don't want to be a fugitive. And they I'm said, not playing nope, anymore. you're not going, and literally kidnapped him until he pretended that he was old Mr. Cooperator and jumped the, the fence, got out, went straight to the FBI, and they used then his testimony to conduct raids on the Scientology organizations in Los Angeles and Washington, D.C. And eventually arrest Mary Sue Hubbard, H Hubbard's wife. So mm -hmm. my question is, and maybe you don't want to speculate about this, but people like Shelley Miscavige and Heber Gentian and other executives, do you suspect that some of them are, are actually being held prisoner, not just of belief? Or do you think that even at this point, like they would, if given the opportunity, do you think that they would leave? I mean, Heber's an old man who can barely walk, apparently, and who knows what's going on with Shelley? Yeah, I suspect that. Are they still playing this game? Would, yes, I, I believe so. I mean, I I believe, Chris, that Heber, who I know very well, but I know both Heber and Shelley very well, and a lot of these other guys too. Heber, I think, is probably 
convinced himself that there is nothing in the outside world for him at all at this point. You know, he's 86 years old or 80 something and is not in good health. And like, where's he going to go? He doesn't have anything outside of Scientology. Shelley, on the other hand, I firmly believe that Shelley is convinced that she must maintain her loyalty, not to her husband, but to L. Ron Hubbard. And that L. Ron Hubbard may well reappear and save her bacon. Shelley was effectively raised by L. Ron Hubbard. She arrived on Hubbard's ship, the Apollo, when she was, I think, 11. And her parents were not there. Her parents, effectively, were Al Ron Hubbard and Mary Sue Hubbard. And she was literally raised at the feet of L. Ron Hubbard being one of his messengers and one of the oldest, longest serving L. Ron Hubbard messengers. And I think that her and some of the other people that are still there believe that they are fulfilling their word to Hubbard and and hoping that Hubbard makes a reappearance. If for some crazy reason they were listening to this right now, would you what would you say to Shelley or Heber or someone in that position? I'd say, look, take a minute. Stop. Put aside everything that you believe that I or anybody else like me is and just hear one thing. The world outside of Scientology and outside of the Sea Organization is not as bad as you believe it is. There are a lot of people who are here who are willing to help you, who are very nice people, who will give you a place to live, give you a job, get your health in order, do whatever is needed to make sure that you have a happy life. Um, it's not uh, it's not the world of boogeymen, psychiatry, big pharma, and uh, FBI agents crawling all over the place trying to destroy your life and take away your freedom. There is a there is a lot more happiness and freedom in the outside world than you're finding on the inside. Believe me, just give it a shot. I don't know that that would that would work, Chris. I and you know. I'm not I'm not sure. You know, there's a there is another approach that you can take and say, look, this is not true. That is not true. Why don't you actually do what Ron says and go look for yourself? Don't listen to what anybody's saying. Go look for yourself. Go look at the organizations of Scientology around the world and see if they are actually accomplishing anything at all. Are they expanding? Is everybody on planet earth so curious about Scientology that they are rushing and breaking down the doors to get in to try and participate in this wondrous thing? Or is it all just a big facade that is a proven failure? So don't listen to me, go look for yourself. Do you think that speaks to the kinds of concerns that you had when you were, you know, in the last year or so before you left? Are these the kind of fears you had? Like, what, what kind of crazy wog world am I going into right now? And is it just going to be worse than what I'm dealing with here? Absolutely. And that, that is a 
fear that is fostered big time, particularly in the Sea Org and at the top of the Sea Org, ultimately what happens is everybody has a point where it's like the inflection point where, okay, this really sucks, but over there is probably going to suck worse. Eventually, you get to the point where this really sucks, that couldn't suck worse. <laughs> and when you get to that point of it couldn't suck worse, that's when you get out. Hey, everyone, this is Chris Kaufman, and I just want to let you know that each one of you are super special, precious snowflakes that I appreciate to bits for listening to my show. I love doing this show so much, but it is still a small show. And if you want to help me out a little bit, I would greatly appreciate it if you would just recommend the show to a friend, maybe two friends. Um, but every little bit counts, especially when you are a small, new and growing show as I am. So if you want to help me out, that is the simplest thing you can do. And I will not bug you any longer right now. Back to the show. So one of the things that you did in your career, one of your assignments was to help facilitate an L. Ron Hubbard biography, correct? Yes. And in doing that, it was kind of a disaster because you and the person tasked with actually writing it in the research kept finding that the details of his life were not as adventurous and awesome as he made them out to be. And there was no plausible way you could write a biography without just openly lying. And that opens up concerns of criticism. You'd rather not have to take that on if you don't have to. Can you say something about just on a practical level, like what kind of thoughts and beliefs did you have and people in your position, people like you, David Miscavige, Marty Rathbun, did you guys have about L. Ron Hubbard's biography when these things come up? I mean, did you just accept that he lied about stuff, but it was for the greater good? Or what, what was your actual thought process as you were going through a project like that? No, the thought process, Chris, is that we have failed to uncover the real facts. If Hubbard says that he sank two Japanese submarines off the coast of Portland, then that has to be true. And you know, there was an enormous amount of money spent to do an expedition off the coast of Oregon to find these two submarines that, of course, they were never found. But that sort of thing happened all the time. You know, he says, uh, at one point he was saying, after dedicating his second book, Science of Survival, to his daughter, Alexis, with Sarah, the wife that he claimed on Granada TV that he never had, who he had married bigamously when he was not divorced from his first wife, Polly. I know this is all like, <laughs> I'm just rattling on crazy facts about L. Ron Hubbard, but subsequently, after Sarah sued him for divorce, and it was a very ugly divorce, and he then disowned his daughter, Alexis. And Alexis, like I said, was the original edition of, of Science of Survival, his second book, is, was dedicated to Alexis. That all disappeared. Okay, Alexis is the daughter, according to Hubbard, of one of Sarah's lovers. And he listed out and Maybe it was Miles Hollister, and maybe it was this guy, and maybe it was that guy. These people are from 1951 that nobody's ever heard of. Okay, we spent huge amounts of time and money trying to track down Miles Hollister and his DNA and to prove that 
the timing of the birth of Alexis was probably, you know, it was nine months after Miles Hollister was in blah, blah, wherever, blah, blah, blah. Like this sort of stuff is what a large amount of time and effort was expended on trying to, to make Hubbard's version of his life plausible. And, you know, I write in my book about the, the incredible revelation it was to me to read Russell Miller's unauthorized biography of L. Ron Hubbard, because Russell Miller had gone around and found a large number of people that knew Hubbard in his early life. People he went to school with, his aunts, his uncles, the people he went on these supposed expeditions, you know. Hubbard claims that he would he was on an expedition to do a full mineralogical survey of Puerto Rico or something. And it was really just a, a sort of a, a trip on a lock to go see if they could find buried gold in the Spanish main. And, you know, these things get would get turned around and turned into great exploits and adventures. And really, there was nothing that demonstrated these things at all. But the other clever, clever thing that Hubbard did was convince Scientologists that the media is a part of the conspiracy, that the, the conspiracy against Hubbard and Scientology it has these dark forces behind it, but the public face of that conspiracy is the media. And the media never get anything right about Hubbard. There is never any any good reports, nothing ever is said that's nice, but, you know, it just sort of goes on this story about how the media is all bad. So it kind of makes it that when there is a media report that reports on this great Caribbean motion picture expedition that he claimed, and it says, oh, well, actually, they ripped a bunch of people off, they couldn't pay their bills, they got stranded in blah, in, in wherever they were stranded, Etc. Etc. That can all be discounted because it's in the media, and and this is part and parcel of the life of Scientologists. Even when though Scientologists are not supposed to really read anything about Scientology that's in the media, if they do, their instant reaction is to reject it because if they if they happen to turn on HBO and Going Clear was on and they saw a bit of going clear by accident before they quickly changed the channel or turned it off entirely or canceled their description subscription to HBO they would reject it because that's just the merchants of chaos which is what Hubbard called the media chaos and they're very merchants. they're very afraid right that if they're subsequently in an auditing session and the e-meter picks up with its needle as it could any kind of like feelings the person has if the person's upset or, you know, it does actually measure something. However, it's not saying it's completely works as advertised, but it does something. And if you were presumably upset or in pain, it might wiggle. And people are genuinely afraid that if they have that thought, a bad thought about L. Ron Hubbard, that it could come up in a session and then they're going to get chastised over and over again and sec checked and all, all, all of these punishments that come up. Exactly, exactly. The E-meter was another stroke of genius of Hubbard. And, and I talk about it quite a lot in my book because 
Scientologists are convinced that the e-meter is this device that can read their mind. And if you can convince someone that you can read their mind, you have an awful lot of power over them, an awful lot. And every Scientologist will tell you that the e-meter works 100% of the time. The e-meter is one of the great breakthroughs that mankind has ever had. And it's very funny to read the words of L. Ron Hubbard and the contradictions that he makes. On one hand, he says, you know, we don't. when the e-meter reads, we have no idea what it's reading on. You never know what it's actually reading on. On the other hand, he'll, he has screeds and screeds of writings about, well, when you see this little thing on the meter, that means the person's got evil intentions. And when you see this, that means they're trying to leave the room. And when you see this, and Scientologists believe every word of that. And the, the e-meter, you know, when you get to the crazy shit in Scientology, like OT3, the operating Thetan level three, the advanced technology, the the this was actually the breakthrough of 1967 and 68 that was going to explain everything that came before that hadn't worked. And this is the crazy story of Xenu, the galactic overlord, who solved the overpopulation of his galactic confederacy by shipping hundreds of billions of people frozen in glycol on DC-8 planes to planet Earth and blew them up in volcanoes with hydrogen bombs. Famously popularized by South Park. Yes, this is what Scientologists actually believe. And it is. You, the OT3 and higher. Yeah. And you, as a Scientologist, see this stuff. And it's in Hubbard's handwriting. Like his very, very unmistakable handwriting. And you read it and you go, this is some crazy shit, man. This is like, whew. And if you have any doubts about it, the person who is watching you read it, because you can't read it by yourself because it's so secret, that person will say to you, you don't need to believe it. What does the e-meter tell you? Are you on the e-meter when you first read those materials? No. But then you're supposed to go sit on the e-meter and actually do these auditing steps. And I don't want to get too complicated here, Chris, but at that level, you start auditing yourself. You use the e-meter on yourself because you're actually auditing, you are auditing all of these little individual people who got blown up in the volcanoes. They're now stuck on your body. And parasitic alien souls that are all over your body, right? And they're called body thetans and you audit them. And you are this crazy story and... So you sit there and you look at the e-meter and suddenly you get a reaction and you go, I guess that's it's reacting on the fact that this really is true. Well, it could be reacting on the fact that this really is crazy. Who knows? But to a Scientologist, it is proof, absolute 100% proof that what Hubbard says is actually true. And that is why the Emida is such a, a stroke of genius. It reminds because- me when I was like 10 years old, I remember my friend's mom, we were at her house and she had a pool and we were all swimming. And she told us that she had put this special new chemical in the pool that turns pink if you pee in it. 
and she was full of shit, but I was terrified. And I was a little kid. I was peeing in the pool all the time. And I never peed in that pool because I was terrified. <laughs> she convinced me. It's the same thing as the email, even whatever it does. If you're convinced it will read on you, you're going to be careful what you, th- not just what you say, but what you think. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it gets even worse when you get to these, this thing called security checking in Scientology, which is really interrogation. And the person who is interrogating you will say, you know, well, what evil intentions do you have towards David Miscavige? And you're sitting there going, I don't know. I don't, you know, I'd like to beat the fuck out of him. But, I, you know, <laughs> apart from that, nothing. Okay, well, no, there's more. What are, What other evil intentions do you have? Well, I don't have any. Uh, yes, the meter is reading. The meter says that you do. So think about it. And you could sit there for hours and hours and hours. And in the end, what happens is people just make shit up and say... It's like repressed memory therapy. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But this tool, this supposedly scientific measuring device is a part of this procedure. It's not just you sitting one-on-one with someone like you saw with... What was the name of that? crazy woman with the cult in California, the, oh God, I can't think of her name. Was there like a documentary about it recently? Yeah, there was a documentary done by this filmmaker called Bit Sola, and they went and were in the commune of this woman, and they were embedded in there, and they were videoing and filming everything, and it is, it is like crazy, and she has this regression therapy sessions where people are like, they start remembering about how their father raped them when they were three years old. And, you know, it's got, it's like very, very strange. And this is what happens in Scientology, but there is an, an additional element to it, which is this device, which supposedly makes the person who is asking you the questions or insisting on you provide the answers infallible. They, if you believe that the meter is true, then the person who's operating the meter is also can't be tricked, can't be fooled, and can't be wrong. And that is a, a recipe for absolute catastrophe. So the crazy beliefs, the Xenu stuff is all super interesting. And, and people hear it and they're like, oh, my God, this is crazy. This religion's so crazy. And not to take anything away from like the tragedy of it, but the high level abuse, the physical beatings that you suffered at the hands of David Miscavige, the being locked up in the hole is also very tragic, but it, it definitely affects a small number of people. It seems to me like the, the most tragic part of the Scientology story. Tell me what you think of this is is less sexy and less scandalous for a TV show, but is the very manipulative and fraudulent bilking people out of their money, ordinary people, and the family disconnection. Do you think that's about right? 100% absolutely, without doubt. The abuses that people suffer, you know, the physical abuses and, and beatings and whatever, that's a small, small, you know, at the highest echelons of Scientology. That's not pervasive throughout everything that happens in Scientology. What is pervasive is, like you say, people being taken advantage of and giving money that they should not be giving and being convinced to turn over money on the basis that if they do so, they'll be able to make more because they'll become more capable and able and they'll be able to, you know, 
live a flourishing and prospering life and the destruction of families because the control mechanism that Scientology uses of disconnecting family members or friends from those who no longer subscribe to the Scientology way of life is an incredibly powerful tool to keep the the sheeple in line. You know, I write about it a, a lot in my book about knowing that if I was to leave, then I'm going to lose all relationships that I've ever had in my life. Not, not just my wife and my children, my mother, my brother, my sister, every person that I've ever really known. Like, I didn't have anybody that I knew that wasn't a Scientologist. Especially someone like you who had been in it for his whole life. Right. And that is a, a very, very powerful, powerful tool to control people. And, you know, Scientology isn't the only ones that use this. You, you know, there's disfellowshipping in the Jehovah's Witnesses. There is uh, basically the same in Mormonism. There's, you know, there's, there's a lot of organizations that have used that tool, but none as effectively and as efficiently as Scientology does. And that, to me, the disconnection and the breaking up of families is the biggest single tragedy of Scientology. I think if I were playing devil's advocate and I was advocating for Scientology, they they want to put forward this this common sense idea that on some level, however close someone is to you, if you have someone in your life that is sufficiently toxic and abusive to you, the healthy thing to do, and any normal psychologist probably would tell you, you should probably just say goodbye to that person and not have them in your life. But they're not having families disconnect over genuinely serious and toxic, abusive relationships. It's most commonly, it's just because someone's not on good terms with the church, especially publicly. Or, or are right. there other more? Con- it's it's done for deliberate manipulative reasons to keep people in or stop people from leaving. Correct. That's exactly right. And look, the idea that you may want to distance yourself from someone who is a, a terrible influence on your life, <laughs> you know, you've got an abusive spouse. You better get the hell out. That that is not a good, healthy activity to be engaged in. You should leave. What Scientology does is tells one spouse, your partner is bad for you and you must leave him. You are required to because your partner is bad. And the reason that he is bad is because he doesn't like Scientology or she doesn't like Scientology. So you must, you must divorce them. They must be gone from your life, not because they're abusing you, because they don't like us. And that is the control mechanism that Scientology uses because they can, at the snap of their fingers, say, this person is no longer in good standing with Scientology. This person is what we call a suppressive person, a bad influence, and everybody who is a Scientologist must disconnect from them. So I mentioned South Park earlier, I think I heard you say this at one point. I mean, the the South Park episode in 2005 where they expose a lot of, you know, the the Xenu story and and are just generally critical of Tom Cruise and the church was maybe the biggest pop culture public 
debacle for Scientology. It wasn't like a, it wasn't a long form article. It wasn't a, a book. It was something that the average person was going to see a lot of. I, I, I don't think there was a precedent probably before South Park that did something that popular on that scale. Is that right? Well, you know, Time Magazine was pretty big. Definitely <laughs> huge. But I, I mean something but, but that like not pop culture. Yeah, you're yeah. exactly right. Yeah, so, that was that was a that sort of stood alone. <laughs> and I heard you say at one point, did, did the church never attempt to sue Comedy Central or do the things that they do? I heard you say at one point that they were genuinely afraid of Trey Parker and Matt Stone. I'm not sure about afraid of them. I think that it was I mentioned the Time Magazine case. Time Magazine did something to the world of Scientology that had never been done before. Not only did they do a, a massive front page, hugely critical article, Scientology sued and lost. And it went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And the decision in the Time Magazine case basically set the standard for what actual malice is in reporting. And that standard is very, very lenient and favorable toward the media as opposed to whoever it is that thinks that they have been defamed. And there was also the Hustler case that that basically said, you know, parody and satire is excluded from claims of, of defamation and harm. And so there wasn't really any legal ground to do anything with Comedy Central. All sorts of efforts were made to try and influence Comedy Central through, you know, its parent company, which I think at the time was CBS or Viacom or someone. I think it was Viacom. And, and none of those efforts. The, the thing about the, the creators of South Park is they're pretty much impervious to being criticized by anybody because they have gone after everyone that from the Catholic Church to I mean they just they were equal opportunity satirists who didn't give a shit about anybody or anything in fact the bigger the better so the internal decision was made after all these efforts to try and do something about even even having Isaac Hayes, who famously ended up quitting the show over that, nothing worked. And so the the strategy became just say it's a cartoon. And, you know, who's going to believe a cartoon? I, I think a better strategy would have been to say, hey, we made it to the big time. If South Park is skewering you, then you're in good company because they skewer everybody. So you're you're up there with you know we're up there now with the with the Jews, the Mormons, the Catholics, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Muslims, and everybody else, and we're just all one big happy family of religions who've been skewered by South Park. Yay us! Well, obviously they took on the Mormon Church as well and did a whole Broadway musical. <laughs> I saw it on Broadway and the playbill. The Mormon Church had taken out ads in the playbill that was very good natured. And it said something to the effect of, you've seen the play, now read the book. And it was right. an advertisement for buying the Book of Mormon. And they were taking it on the chin very gracefully, which I, I gather Scientology did not. Scientology isn't good on jokes. I mean, this is just not, not in the Scientology playbook. <laughs> I'm curious, besides South Park, well, one, 
Do you enjoy at this point in your life seeing these kinds of Scientology spoofs? And if so, what's been your favorite? Oh, without doubt, the SNL We Stand Tall takeoff (laughs) song. That is just the greatest parody and exceedingly clever. And a bunch of those writers know a lot about Scientology to have put that together. And then the second greatest is the Kaminsky myth. Well, the Kaminsky method that the season where the Scientologist, Haley Joel Osmond, it plays the Scientologist, is pitch perfect. That is absolutely so spot on. And then thirdly, I just happen to love John Oliver, and John Oliver has just taken on Scientology constantly, constantly. And is it's sort of a running joke that he plops in wherever he can about, you know, where's Shelley or just crazy stuff, Dianetics. And, and he had a volcano in his backdrop. And <laughs> like, it's all, all, you know, never ending. So I like the fact and enjoy seeing it because it comes up all the time. Have you been watching The Boys? Yep, absolutely. So many people now make fun of it, and so many people have commentary about it. You know, the the Golden Globes about Shelley Miscavige was yeah. like, that's pretty, that was a pretty, <laughs> pretty bold statement. I'm sure you've seen them all, but I, one of my very favorites that's very underknown, have you ever heard the episode of the Dead Authors podcast on no. Scientology? So the Dead Authors podcast, it doesn't run live anymore, but the it's a bunch of improv comics. And the premise is that the host plays H.G. Wells and he has a time machine and he goes around in time interviewing dead authors. So they get other improv comics and they really do their homework. They read a biography, they get in character and they do a live in front of a live studio audience, an interview on this author. And they've done all kinds of authors. Well, an actor named an improv actor named Andy Daly comes on as L. Ron Hubbard. It was so funny, and it was the only time they did a two-part episode because they loved it so much. Everyone, They had him come back for a second part. <laughs> it's so astoundingly funny, and if you don't know a lot about Scientology, sometimes it's hard to tell where he's in character being accurate and where he just makes things up. Because he'll say ridiculous things like talking about his life history back when I was the the commander of McDonald's or something like that. <laughs> and, you know, obviously that's not true, but I highly recommend. It's called the Dead Authors Podcast. And I will sign, look it up, Chris. It's so funny. I've, I've listened to that, bo- the two-part episode, like three or four times, and I make everyone who will tolerate it listen to it. And you, you if it wasn't clear to the audience, you have been in long enough that you knew L. Ron Hubbard uh, and spent a decent amount of time with him when you were younger. Um, yes. I don't know if that'll make the episode funnier or less funny because he really tries to get into character and you'll have a sense of how accurate it was. I will listen to and I will text you and tell you what I think about. Will it. you please? Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I am conscious of time, but I wanted you to do a couple rapid fire questions just to satiate my curiosity. One, okay. I heard a rumor from I forget who, if it was Jesse Prince or someone, some other former Scientologist that I know the original OT8 was released and was apparently different from what it became. And somebody said that the original one was very upsetting to the people who initially took it and that it might have even included some L. Ron Hubbard essentially implying that he was Lucifer or something like that. Have you ever heard that rumor or do you know anything about that? 
That rumor has been around for a long, long, long time. And I have tried mightily to figure out anybody that may have actually seen that who I can verify was one of those original people that went to do OTA. And I have not been able to find anybody. So I don't know, Chris. I don't know. It could have been a forgery. Someone could have made it up and just sort of pretended to be L. Ron Hubbard writing this thing. Or it could have been Hubbard because it's not more crazy than a bunch of the other shit that he wrote. So who knows? This one is probably even harder to confirm, but his son Nibs, or I forget what his real name was, claimed that his dad had gone crazy at some point and was trying to procure a nuclear bomb. That one I don't know about. That sounds more crazy because his son seemed crazy too. Yeah, his son's name was L. Ron Hubbard Jr. But he went by Nibs? That was his nickname. Here's some fast-paced questions on David Miscavige. One, current leader of Scientology and psychopath extraordinaire. Do you have any genuinely fond memories of David Miscavige? And I don't mean memories that at the time you enjoyed, but even now looking back where you think, oh, he was kind there. That was a nice moment. No. Because unlike no. L. Ron Hubbard, I don't, I, my impression of David Miscavige is much more one-dimensionally psychotic and L. Ron Hubbard seemed to have a jovial and charismatic side. Not that David Miscavige isn't charismatic. The answer is no, no genuinely no. fond moment memories. <laughs> That's sad. For him, I mean. Related question, do you think he has any genuine friends besides maybe Tom Cruise or Shelley once upon a time? No. Also sad for him. Very. Do you He's think a he... lonely guy. Yeah. He is a lonely guy that lives in... You want to talk about a prison of belief, Chris? David Miscavige lives in a prison of fear that he has created. He fears all sorts of things. He fears people around him. Everybody's trying to destroy him. The government's after him. The FBI wants to take him down. Plaintiffs want to take him down. SPs like me want to take him down. He's like, he's living in a world that is a, is a created world of his own, his own imagination and his own bad deeds. It's rea- it's and a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? I mean, some of that exa- stuff that's is true. exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, that's related to uh, another question. Do you think he's a true believer in Scientology? Does he genuinely believe most or all of the doctrines of Scientology? Okay, this is a this is a question I get asked a lot, and I answer it the same way all the time. It doesn't really matter. He says he is a true believer. He has to say he is a true believer because. He's the leader of Scientology. If he says, I believe in Scientology, is that any different than the other guy that's in Scientology that says, I too believe in Scientology? Everybody who is in Scientology has some doubts about whether this is really what it's cracked up to be or not. And the the level of doubt is you are either still a Scientologist and you suppress all those doubts, so therefore you're a believer, or you're the fuck out of there and you're no longer a Scientologist. So he's still there. So, you know, he's still a believer because if he wasn't, he wouldn't be there. What do you think scares him the most right now? Lawsuits. And and he was just named for the first, not the first time, but he was just named as a... He was just served. He was just served. So he's a defendant in a, and he tries everything to not be named personally as a defendant in lawsuits. Correct. And, and when he is named to avoid ever being served so that he can never be 
brought into court. And, and the reason that he fears that is because he doesn't have answers to many, many, many things, including where is his wife <laughs> and what happened to her and where's all the money and what are you spending your money on, et cetera, et cetera. Now, not all of that is relevant in a case, but he is worried that, you know, the FBI is going to come knocking and other civil litigants are going to come knocking and eventually the pressure and the intrusion into this secretive world is going to become too much and too many of the secrets are going to come tumbling out. So Scarface and The Godfather are movies about young men who through ruthless ambition climb their way to the top of an immoral organization. Is it true that those are his favorite movies? Does he see himself in those characters? I know that he loves Scarface because he must have watched it like many times when I was with him or around him. Not so sure about The Godfather. I don't know. But I recommend to everybody that they read this book called The Sociopath Next Door by Martha Stout, who was a Harvard professor. Uh, that book changed my perception of David Miscavige. I thought that he was a unicorn who... I happen to have the misfortune of being put in the same corral with. Turns out that he is a, a personality type that is identifiable and that there are plenty of others like him. I just happen to have experience with him. That or the traits of a sociopath are the traits of David Miscavige and the traits of others like the characters portrayed in Scarface. And so, yes, that it is an actual type of person that does that, that, that scratches and claws their way to the top, despite whatever the impact may be on those that they tread on or squash or destroy on the way to the top. And that is the story of David Miscavige. I really hope somebody writes a dedicated biography just of him. I would love to read that. And I'm sure he would hate that. Oh, I'm sure he would too. <laughs> what psychological trait do you feel like has been hardest for you to shake coming out of the church or that is still with you, good or bad? Well, I don't want to shake good ones. I mean, I could see good ones. I, like I, you're an I, amazing I, communicator and you're unflappable. <laughs> I think, Chris, that the hardest one to shake are prejudices that you don't know were instilled into you. And, and I'll give you a perfect example. Scientologists, Hubbard thinks that homosexuality is an aberration and uh, something that is uh, evil and bad and et cetera. It's, you know, it's just like, yuck. And that was how I was raised. I mean, that was my belief system. And even not necessarily wittingly so, just it's just it, there in the background. It's just there. And I fear that there are other things like that that I'm not even, haven't even realized yet, are ingrained from the view of the world that is put forth by Hubbard. I mean, I try desperately to eradicate those things from my thinking or my view of things, but. My fear and the thing that worries me is that I'm not aware of those things. 
and that I still have those prejudices or twisted views of things, and I don't know that they are really twisted or that they're prejudicial. They just happen to be sort of part of me that is, that's how I was raised, and that's how I've always thought, and uh, I didn't realize that was wrong. And that sort of, that bothers me that that may be the case. I think the other thing that bothers me or that I find the hardest to shake is the idea that it's sort of okay to be hurtful to someone in a just cause. And I find myself now on the other side of that equation as to whether it's it's acceptable to be hurtful or harmful to Scientologists because I believe it's a just cause to expose the abuses. And I worry sometimes that I do or say things that maybe I shouldn't and that it's not necessary to be that harmful. And maybe you do, but the fact that you worry about it is probably worlds different from how you thought about it when you were in the church. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No question about that. But, you know, I, I think I've come a long way in how I view myself and how I view people around me and how I view the world from where I was when, you know, I was the international spokesperson of Scientology. You mentioned The Sociopath Next Door already. Do you have any any other book recommendations or any kind of recommendations you might want to give for people who want to dig deeper than your book, which is the first stop you must make? Well, obviously, there is Leah's book, which is Troublemaker. Mark Headley's book is an excellent book called Blown for Good. And Jefferson Hawkins' book, Counterfeit Dreams, is one of the more intelligent and well-reasoned. He's a very, very smart guy. And then there's Going Clear. If you haven't read Going Clear and you want to know about Scientology, that's probably the best single synopsis of the subject you know, from Hubbard to what goes on in Scientology. And I also highly, highly recommend Barefaced Messiah, the unauthorized biography of L. Ron Hubbard by Russell Miller. There's so many good ones. I think Counterfeit yeah. Dreams is the only one in on that list I haven't, I haven't read. Well, there you go. But Got some new reading, Chris. <laughs> I do have some new reading. I, I'm aware of it. And well, and I, and I have a feeling that my audience probably is is not particularly up on Scientology watching. It happens to be something I've followed for a long time, but right. these are all great books. And Mike's book was amazing. And there's so much more we could have talked about, but you're gonna have to read the book to hear about it. I mean, he had a fascinating life inside the church from the time he was a kid, the time he was an adult and left very dramatically. And if you want to do some, if you want some fun supplements to reading Mike's book, there are things you can look up on YouTube. Like you had very dramatic experience on the BBC show Panorama with John Sweeney, and you can read the book and you yes. can also go watch those episodes. Yeah, um, it really adds some flavor and texture to the book. Where can people find you if they want to keep up with your work? I have a blog, a daily blog, MikeRindersBlog.org. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I have a YouTube channel and I can't even remember what the name of it. I just I'll find it and put it on there. my first video today, actual video. I've got videos of private investigators and all that shit, but I did a video about David Miscavige being served that I put up on that YouTube channel today. So I just saw that. They that that's where you can find me. I'm not hard any, to find. Do you have any upcoming projects you want to let anyone know about? 
Well, Leah and I are planning on getting our podcast going again. I'm oh, trying I was, this- was going to ask that. Yeah. That's amazing. I'm trying to get this YouTube channel going and me sort of understanding how to do it and figuring my way through StreamYard and whatever you need to do to edit videos, et cetera, et cetera. And then we'll get rolling again and start putting stuff out probably on YouTube because we don't have to deal with censorship. I know that there is some censorship on YouTube, but... We have had a lot of problems when you start dealing with corporate interests and the ability of Scientology to be able to influence them. So that's kind of our plan, and that's hopefully going to be upcoming in the next month or two. Oh, and if anyone is listening who is, God forbid, in Scientology, and you're not supposed to be listening to this, shame, shame, or if you know someone who is, do you want to plug the Aftermath Foundation? Absolutely. The Aftermath Foundation is a nonprofit that was started by myself and my wife and Mark and Claire Headley and Aaron Smith-Levin, another guy called Luis Garcia. And the organization is dedicated to helping people escape from and create a new life outside of Scientology, because too many people who have left have not had any resources and nowhere to go and no one to help them and they don't have jobs and they don't have money. And so we created this organization and the aftermathfoundation.org is the website and you can go there and volunteer your time. You can give money. We have people who have volunteered from around the world to pick people up or give them somewhere to stay or help them find a job or get them a driver's license, whatever it is that people need, that they find themselves incapable of dealing with, or that they fear that they're not going to be able to deal with when they leave, we're there for them. And that's an organization that has already helped a lot of people. That's really amazing. And I will include a link to the Aftermath Foundation, Mike's information, if you want to follow him on social media or anything, as well as the recommended books he suggested on the show notes. So check that out if you're interested in any of this. My guest today has been Mike Rinder, and his book, once again, is A Billion Years, My Escape from a Life in the Highest Ranks of Scientology. Mike, thank you so much for joining me on Ideas Having Sex. You're very welcome, Chris. Great conversation. Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening.